The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range. Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie This is our last day uh, at Boston College. We'll be talking to the the football coach, Steve Adazio, later. And don't forget, tickets are now on sale for Boston College against Georgia Tech on September uh, the 3rd. Shane Coleman, News Talk's political editor, is in Dublin keeping tabs on the formation of government. And uh, are you are you willing to concede, Shane? An election is now a near certainty. No, I wouldn't say that, George. Uh, um, it it is certainly a possibility, and I will certainly concede it is more of a possibility, probably now than at any time in the past. Whatever it is, how many it's days I've lost count. It's I, I, probability, I don't think so, and I don't think so for the following reason, George. Um, Enda Kenny needs a government to be formed. If Enda Kenny does does not form a government, then he is gone. He is toast. And for that reason, ultimately, I think we will see a government formed. So the, the Irish, the, the Irish nation, is now dependent on whether Endigeni wants to be uh, re-elected as Taoiseach for the first time in the history of Fine Gael. That's now what the country is but based so on. Politics. That, politics everything is, is so based on. But so George, politics is always about the first rule of politics is survival. That's what politics no, is, is I, based I, on. I, I, sorry, you obviously haven't been listening to everybody in the last seven weeks uh, they've been saying the country comes first it is the nation you know yeah look I mean it's easy to deride that and it's easy to deride politicians Um, I I think their motives are not entirely pure but I don't think their motives are entirely impure either I think all things being equal, they do want a government formed. And I think, you know, most of them actually do act most of the time in the national interest. But it would be naive to believe that uh, personal interest doesn't come into it. the national interest looking for roundabouts on uh, highways and DITs or ITs. No, uh, they're uh, not acting, uh, no. uh, They're independent uh, TDs. They're independent TDs. And if they were here now, and look, I am not a particular advocate of independent TDs, but if they were here now, they would say they are, that's what they were elected to do by the people, is to represent their constituencies. And that's true. Where I have a problem is when they then try and portray themselves as acting in the national interest. Uh, and I, I think that, I would agree with you, I think that is a stretch. Um, it, the latest, George, is there is no doubt the Irish water issue is proving a sticking point. Uh, it would be wrong to say the talks have broken down, but they have certainly hit an impasse uh, on that. There is no agreement. My understanding is people uh, involved in the talks are quite downbeat at this stage. Now, of course, look, that can change. Uh, Let's have a listen to... um, This was Pascal Donoghue a little earlier. Um, He was, I suppose, maybe striking a bit more of an upbeat tone. Have a listen to this. Uh, We're all uh, doing our best to find area of uh, common ground uh, and uh, we will be working in that spirit with them now across the rest of the day. Not what much common ground. Not much common no, ground. But what does that mean? That means nothing. That <laughs> is kind of meaningless horse manure that politicians come out with. Yeah, well, That's look, George, to be, to be fair to him, it's not claptrap. It's a holding statement. He's not going to come out and say, tell the media, just because we're there, it doesn't mean he has to feed us. Uh, he's not going to come out and tell, tell us what's going on behind negotiations. And Pascal Dunne is quite right in that, in, in that regard. Uh, can they get off this sticking point of water? 
apparently what is on offer from Fine Gael is increased allowances for people uh, maybe who are who are less well off and the the issue as well has been talked about about changing Irish water from a utility uh, into a state agency I'm not sure particularly what difference that would make but Fianna Fáil my understanding is are not happy with what's being proposed uh, Oh, hold on. The, uh, the purpose of Irish water was twofold. One, conservation, because clearly water is a scarce resource. So conservation and the idea the polluter should pay so that if I use twice as much water as the person living next to me, I should pay twice as much as he or she yeah. does. Point one. Point two was that Irish water would enable the, the Ireland to borrow money to fix the leaks uh, and upgrade the system without it appearing on uh, the balance sheet. Yeah. Neither of those core points have been addressed by Irish Water in that it's a fixed charge. It doesn't matter whether you... Yeah, that's not Irish, that's not Irish Water's done. fault. That was, the, that, was, that was Alan Kelly who decided that, not Irish Water, we should say. Uh, yeah, but Irish Water is, was set up by the government. And yeah. then we have the nonsense. Then we have the nonsense uh, that uh, it, it didn't work in terms of borrowing off balance sheets. So it, it, this is a failed idea and a failed system. And what we know is that we have two major political parties in the country trying to uh, put life into a terminal corpse. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that analysis at all. And anyone who saw the primetime programme last night on the state of our water system, um, uh, literally excrement uh, in solid form uh, in the ri- in in the water in Rush in North Dublin. Anybody who saw that, I think the question has to be: If you don't have a state utility responsible for water, how are you going to address those issues? There were mistakes made up made in the setting up of Irish Water, absolutely, but it is there now. And I think the biggest mistake we could make is to move away from Irish Water because the idea that the local authorities uh, or that government expenditure uh, could handle and meet our needs for water investment over the last 10 years I think that's or over the next 10 years I think is fanciful and the last 20 years has shown us that cannot happen I think moving away from Irish water personally would be a disastrous decision I'm not suggesting moving away from Irish water I'm suggesting that the two major parties in the country are arguing about something that there is no argument about that you attempt to put something in that fixes the system that uh, uh, makes the polluter pay and they're they're actually doing the opposite. They're turning around and saying, "How many freebies can we give people in order that Irish water yeah. will be accepted?" I, I, and there's certainly truth to that. I suspect. I suspect the country. You know, I suspect the country is actually going bananas. I suspect the average person in the street, Sean Citizen, is going absolutely bananas at uh, what's going on. What's this about spurious reasons for turning down council houses? What's that all about? This is an extraordinary story broken uh, in the Irish uh, Examiner today about the reasons why uh, council ha- people had turned down social housing. We all know housing is a huge problem. I suppose we should say at the outset this is a minority of people, but it is quite extraordinary. Some of the cases, some of the examples given uh, in this story. For example, a uh, we know of one case where a council estate, a council house in Cove, which was a three-story house, 
with a view of uh, Cove Harbour, and I, I'm sure you know it, George, it's an absolutely stunning view of Cove Harbour, was turned down by a person because uh, she feared her children would suffer from seasickness from looking out the window <laughs> at the at, I kid you not. Um, other reasons why they were turned down was one where somebody in, in North Cork uh, went to visit the house and there was the builders were there finishing off uh, a snag list and there was some dust there and they turned it down on that basis. Now my understanding is it required little more than a bit of a hoover and while you might be a bit irritated by the dust I, I, I you know I I'm, I can't understand why you wouldn't just get a hoover they, out and do it. But but what happens to these people then? Or, well this is are it. Are they this not taken off no, the list? No, no they're, they're not. My understanding is they're not taken off the list. By the way one other one which is worth mentioning is uh, another one was turned down because the back garden wasn't big enough uh, to put the trampoline uh, up in which um, will irritate and anger people I suppose in uh, equal measure so it is an extraordinary situation now look this is a minority of cases and it doesn't dilute the need yeah, that no, is no. there Shane look if somebody has offered a council house it's a bit like being offered a job you're offered a job and you say no I don't actually want the job I want to stay on the dole for a few more weeks I know where this is heading this is, we're heading now towards Norway and all the other Scandinavian countries who have lost the plot uh, because of their liberal left-wing sentiments. Uh, I was actually in Oslo. I was in Norway and I was travelling to Oslo when Anders Breivik slaughtered young people. And now he's won a case against the Norwegian government because his, his civil rights are infringed. He has indeed, George. He's him. a lucky man that he wasn't hung from the nearest tree. Instead of which, he's in court complaining about the microwave not working and the coffee is cold. Well, they were some of the complaints. There were other more, I Likewise. suppose, substantial complaints. He complained. Isolation from other prisoners, frequent strip searches, the fact he was handcuffed while moving between the cells at his uh, at his disposal. Hold <laughs> um, on, okay, just remind me, just remind me what he's convicted of. What was he convicted of? He was convicted of killing 77 people uh, during the attack. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. He's convicted of seven, killing 77 people and he's worried that he's handcuffed moving behind between cells. I tell you, I'm speaking to you from America and whatever you t- think about the, the, the country, one thing is absolutely certain, Andrews Brevik wouldn't be breathing today yeah. in America. I, I, no he would have got I, shot I, I don't think, uh, 20,000 yeah. volts. I know, I don't... Well, well, that's if he if he made it to arrest. I, I don't think anyone um, is arguing that the US justice system now, George, is the model we should be putting forward. Have a listen to Sky's uh, Ian Woods describing the judge's verdict, uh, George. The judge in this case has said that the prohibition of inhuman and degrading treatment represents a fundamental value in a democratic society. This applies no matter what, also in the treatment of terrorists and killers. Here's my argument, George. And here's where we disagree. And just can I say at the outset, I shouldn't need to say this, but I know you're going to throw it back at me, so I'm going to say at the outset, what he did was monstrous and horrific. And he is indeed lucky, uh, if you want to use that term, that he committed this act in, in Norway. And what he did is appalling, and he should never see the light of day again. That said, if we are a truly democratic, modern society, and if we don't want to be what ISIS is, for example... Well, then we have to have certain standards and the, the, the benchmark for those standards is how we treat the 
not just the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society, but the most contemptible in our society as well. And that's why I think it's too trite and too easy to dismiss this case. And I, I think... Norway should be applauded for upholding those standards, however risable it might seem and however appalling this character clearly is. But it is risable. That's the whole point. And and the the thing is that uh, I'd give Gilbert and Sullivan had the answer. And that's a strange place to go for the answer. But let the punishment fit the crime. And and what kind of punishment should there be? An eye for an eye. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Correct. That's yeah. now you've got that, it right. Doesn't Absolutely. that leave everybody blind? Isn't that the, isn't that the retort for that? <laughs> All right. Um, I I tell you, I had uh, a neighbour call in, Kevin O'Hurley. He lives just down the road from me, and he's studying here at Boston College. And he called in. Wasn't that great? That was small world. Irish people are everywhere, George. Everywhere. Well, for the same amount of money, you get double the effort. You got two Shanes now. We have Shane O'Donoghue, the motoring correspondent for the Sunday Business Post, and, and Shane Coleman, News Talk's political editor and keen driver, is staying with me because the RSA, the Road Safety Authority, have called for essentially the default speed limit to be 30 kilometres in all urban areas. And they're suggesting not only would it increase protection for people, but it will boost tourism. Shane O'Donoghue, the Sunday Business Post, Shane. Uh, boost tourism? Will it be workable? It's an interesting theory, that. I mean, there's a lot more to do than just reduce the speed limits to bring in the tourists. Um, I mean, the speed limit being talked about is purely in towns and cities. So, you know, most currently most walking and cycling tourists are going out looking at their our countryside and the wilds, where which where this wouldn't uh, affect that at all. So maybe uh, Moya is talking about you know new city tours, cycling tours, walking tours within the cities, which is an interesting idea. Yeah, but hold on. Uh, you you can drive most of the roads of Ireland without seeing uh, either a policeman or a van. Uh, who, who, how, where are the Gardaí going to get the resources to put vans down uh, every urban street in Dublin, Cork and Galway and Limerick and everywhere else? No, I agree. That's the biggest question mark about all of, the, of these calls, you know, enforcement. Um, all current limits we have aren't enforced. I mean, I live in an urban area not too far from the centre of Dublin, and it's 50 kilometres an hour um, here, and there's people driving past every day much faster than that, you know, every single day. Um, and I, I can't see that that's going to change just because we suddenly have all new limits in our towns and cities. Are we suddenly going to have a big uh, team of Gardaí that are enforcing that? Or probably not. All right, well, I'm going to the intrepid cyclist, Shane Coleman, News Talk's uh, uh, political editor. Shane, can, do you know what 30 kilometres is in old money, do you? It is, well, what, divide by uh, 16, yeah, so uh, <laughs> 20, what is it? Uh, 18, 18 point something, yeah, right. yeah 18 point something miles an hour. Shane, you on your bike go faster than 18 See, miles I, you know what? I, just as you knew how I'd respond to this, I knew how you'd <laughs> respond to this. Yes, um, yes. Look, my view on this, and uh, you know, I don't. Shane is right. Enforcement is going to be a problem, but b- because it's difficult to enforce, doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Um, and there is there is a fact, and this fact is incontrovertible that. If you're hit by a vehicle travelling at 30 kilometres an hour, you have a 9 in 10 chance of surviving. If you're hit by a vehicle travelling at 50 kilometres an hour, 
you have a 50-50 chance and 60 kilometres an hour, it's 1 in 10 chance. Now, I think the argument is beyond dispute. I think we should do this. And I think what it would do, it wouldn't mean everybody would drive at 30 kilometres an hour, but it would help change the culture. It would help change attitudes about how we drive in cities and perhaps, who knows, even outside cities and towns as well. To me, it's a no-brainer. It's happening in cities and towns across Europe. I think we should do it. And I just don't understand the logic of people who who said who say we should we shouldn't do it. Uh, okay. It's people who are putting speed, who are valuing speed over uh, over the safety of our, our citizens. And forget tourism. This is about the safety of the people who live here and who visit here. Okay, now Shane O'Donoghue, you're the motoring correspondent on the Business Post, so we know where your heart is on this issue. Um, but is it not also true that for a substantial proportion of the, the looking at Dublin, but I'm sure it applies in other cities in Ireland, for a substantial proportion of uh, residential areas, there are ramps, which means that you can't try, like if you, if you hit the modern day ramp, even at 30 kilometers an hour, your head's going to bounce off the roof of your car. Absolutely. I mean, I don't think speed ramps are uh, the best solution overall either. But um, to be honest, I actually agree with the other Shane in terms of introducing this idea. But I, I would be against it being a blanket thing. There are so many roads that would be uh, defined as urban roads um, that you know that pedestrians and cyclists are nowhere near. Um, you know that they're kept separately, and then 30 kilometres an hour limit there doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Um, I mean, back to traffic calming measures, I mean, they work to a certain extent. Uh, speed bumps aren't, aren't the best idea, um, you know, in terms of emergency vehicles getting through and potential damage to other vehicles, etc. But I, I don't know, I, I still don't think there's a, a, a silver bullet to this. Uh, George, yeah, but Shane, Shane Coleman, yeah. Yeah, uh, Shane, actually, he, he <laughs> Sunday Business Post, Shane, hits on a very, very good point. And I, I actually think it's a point worth making. I think by far the most dangerous places for pedestrians and cyclists is not are not in urban areas, but are in rural areas. You take, try and take a walk in a rural area in Ireland, and it is frightening, the speed at which cars uh, go by. I, I, I think I'm right. I haven't been down there in a number of years, but I remember being on the Ring of Kerry and seeing a speed uh, limit of 100 kilometres an hour for the Ring of Kerry. Uh, and just thinking that is apt. Now, that, that may well have changed in the last couple of years, so I'm open to correction. But, uh, uh, but that Shane, is just wrong. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't actually disagree, you see. This is really the point. But I disagree with a, with a law that A, won't work because it's unenforceable, uh, because we do, cannot enforce it, and B, there will be treated with derision by the people who, who are supposed to be driving. That's my problem. I, I absolutely agree that getting, like, we had a tragedy in the Phoenix Park in the last week, did we not? Uh, with a babe in arms. Uh, it, uh, it, the, the, the case was heard uh, in the last week and it, it was right, a, yeah. an absolutely horrendous uh, tragedy and yes. any, anyone who read the victim impact statement of the little girl's mother, it was the most heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing. And that's the Phoenix Park. Yeah. Um, Isn't it? Yeah, I'm... I'm to be honest, uh, and look, I, I'm just very conscious uh, that that family has, has been through yeah. uh, enough. I, I'm not sure that case uh, is, is particularly relevant uh, to this argument. I, I, I totally accept your point and Shane's point that it would be difficult to enforce. But I don't think it's impossible to enforce. Okay. And I don't think that's All the right. reason for not doing it. 
All right, motoring core at Sunday Business Post, Shane O'Donnell, let's be honest, Shane, it would be impossible to enforce. Is that not so? No, I, I do believe so. I don't think it would be possible to enforce. But, um, and, you know, while I agree with the other Shane on the fact that we still should consider these things, even if they're not enforceable, the problem with that is if a speed limit isn't realistic um, and people don't take any notice of it, then that speed limit is irrelevant. Um, we saw it when we, the roads changed over to kilometres an hour. Um, and there was blanket changes across the country where some roads suddenly were uh, posted as 80 kilometres an hour. And, you know, they're pretty big, wide roads, and people every day were used to going, commuting down those roads very fast, and they completely ignored the limits. And then, therefore, those limits are irrelevant, and those the law is irrelevant. Yeah. It's not being enforced, um, and it's not being adhered to. George, I know we're out of time, oh, but yeah. I know we're out. Just very quickly, uh, when you say it's unenforceable, all it takes is uh, one speed check once a month on a road every now and then find about 25 people who are who are over 30 kilometres an hour and it'll soften people's cough pretty quickly Alright, we don't believe you Shane Rendonahue from the Sunday Business Post Shane Coleman from News Talks uh, political editor uh, at uh, 5 o'clock we're going to be looking at modular housing uh, on Anders Brevik, you're a scumbag hook, using the tragedy to belittle those you disagree with, you realise that if Brevik had his way that Norway would be a right wing hellhole that's right. If Brevik had his way, Norway would be a right-wing hello. That's why you lock him up. Uh, and some people don't like uh, Shane's idealism. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie Joined now, however, for, for the next item by the spokesperson for Fingless Action Group, Sandra Devlin. Sandra, uh, welcome to the programme. Thank you, George. Now, they, they, obviously we have a dramatic uh, housing crisis in Ireland, particularly leading to homelessness of, of uh, uh, now dramatic numbers of families and children. One of the, the uh, issues was that we would have modular homes, which we could put up fairly quickly, uh, to house people who are homeless by the council or government. Uh, some some of these homes were suggested for Fingless. You're unhappy. Tell me why. Um, we are acutely aware of the social housing need at the moment. And, um, you know, we're looking at a pile of developments that's planned for Fingless. Um, the modular units just being one. Now, I just want to say the residents welcome all of the developments that we're talking about, and they welcome everyone to Finglas. Um, you know, Finglas has been notorious for all the wrong reasons, but what a lot of people don't know is that for 30 years, the residents have worked to set up residents' associations. We've worked with the Joint Police and Committee to set up safety forums, suicide support services, youth groups, etc., and thanks to the work of a generation of activists that have gone before us, the area is literally just beginning to settle to a point where people are buying into Finglas as opposed to, you know, trying to get out. You know, and this is bringing about a great no, change in the area. But, but yeah, Sandra, I get that. And I'd like yeah. to applaud you and the people with you for, for doing what you've done. Because, like, I've lived in Dublin uh, since I was 19. So I've lived in Dublin for 50 years. And, and I I know Finglas as well as anybody in that sense and the problems you, you would have faced. But how does the provision of modular housing 
change all the good work that you have done. Well, the modular housing is one of a pile of experimental, unnatural developments that we found out about that is planned for Finglas. Um, and not just for Finglas, this is happening all over Dublin and beyond. And what's happening is, is that various methods are being used to bypass planning laws. You know, we seem to have a, a, a pile of reactionary estates, uh, you know, coming to Finglas, our commercial lands being rezoned for social housing, so on and so forth, uh, with no talk given to an overall plan for the area. Um, no sorry, no Sandra, kind of vision, just a- you know. Yeah. yeah, just explain to me, because obviously I'm not an expert in this, like we have planning laws and, and we have planning authorities and we have a city council. How can we get, therefore, what you describe as unnatural developments? How can we get that given what we have in place? Yeah, well, exactly. That's our point. We have planning laws for a reason. You know, they, they advocate integration. They ensure proper planning for safe and sustainable development of areas. Um, but all of the developments we're hearing about, for one reason or another, planning seems to have been bypassed on each one of them. Mm-hmm. So the modular unit site, say, for example, a legal loophole was used there, Section 1796B of the planning law. That was designed back in the 1930s for times of war and famine. Now, we have the precedence in that, you know, we had laws like that used in Finglas before, um, whereby no planning permission is required, no public consultation, information, no communication. Um, we had the Abigail Centre put into Finglas under similar um, uh, regulation um, and a refugee centre for 400 refugees. These were, you know, the refugee centre was a temporary emergency accommodation also. It's 12 years there now and, you know, residents are in there three to five years as opposed to the initial six months. Okay, Sandra, let me me give you my six pence worth on this, right? The first thing is the word temporary always becomes permanent, whether you apply it to housing or tax, you know. Income tax apparently a couple of hundred years ago was a temporary measure. VAT was a temporary measure. So I, I get you. I mean, yeah. I absolutely get you, and particularly in the relation in in the issue in terms of of, of migrants or refugees, I also get it where people around the country uh, have been in in uh, some kind of housing situation for long more than it should have. The question of the modular housing. I said when this idea was mooted that I didn't say Finglas, but if, if, if I hope you won't be offended when I say that I, I felt it was going to go into areas of Dublin that were less affluent than areas that were, that were affluent. So they were going to put the modular housing where you live rather than where I live. And yeah. that's absolutely wrong. And I, I have no understanding of why that should happen. Now, having said that, I've studied the houses themselves. I mean, at about they're a quarter of a million pretty well. They're certainly not temporary. No. 
Yeah, th- I mean, this is the, pro- the problem, you know, they're not temporary. So, you know, we need to have proper planning. And particularly when we're not just talking about one estate, we're talking about at least 10 that we've managed to find out about. Oh, sorry, um, Sandra, I'm sorry for interrupting, but sure. because I don't know, I need, and, and the listener needs the information. Yeah. Are you saying that there are 10 developments planned, which might not necessarily be modular housing, it could be any kind of housing, or they are modular housing plans? These are uh, not all modular housing. Uh, modular housing, I believe, is the way the future is going to go. Our, our issue is not with the houses. I believe they'll be beautiful houses. I believe they will be there for a long time. Our issue is with, take, for example, the modular unit site. Um, had that gone through proper planning processes, the issues around that site would have been dealt with at planning stage. Like, for example, the site that's being used, it was a senior citizen's complex there, um, a 30-year-old building, uh, no reason why it should have been torn down, um, you know, but it was torn down, the, the residents, you know, felt they were isolated down the end of this long laneway and the senior citizen's complex was built at the beginning of the laneway. Um, now, the laneway has serious access issues in that it's one laneway okay. shared so, by two schools, a church, the senior citizens' complex, and a childcare facility with eight right. toddlers. So, sorry, Sandra. Sure. Sorry. I think you have made a very valid point here. The objection that the Fingler Saxon group has is not, and, and you may well, this may well have been misconstrued in, in, in media, your objection is not to the people coming to live there or in essence really the houses. You're saying that you wouldn't have built any kind of house perhaps there in the first place if you had gone through uh, proper planning. Is, is that really the nub of your argument? Issues like that would have absolutely been addressed during proper planning. And, I mean, it's safe to say we have three homeless shelters within walking distance of the modular unit site. You know, we have 400 refugees happily here 12 years. We have no issue with any people in Finglas. Their issue is all about this um, uh, new bypass and planning laws. Um, So, for example, when you bypass planning, in around the modular unit site, we're looking at 400 houses coming in in the next year or so. That's 2,000 plus people. Uh, Finglas, like you said, it's a designated rapid area, meaning an area of extreme deprivation. Um, our services are stretched to the limits because like that, we do have, um, you know, we are a, a deprived area. We do have a lot of homeless shelters and refugees drawn on services. The schools in the laneway beside the modular unit, for example, the principal there comes to our meetings. He says, I'm waiting over a year on one teacher. Um, the childcare facility has uh, 200 children on the waiting list. My own children, you cannot get public health laws to do their developmental checks in, in Finglas. They're just okay. out the door. Yeah. I, have I have to tell you... Right, I have to tell you that uh, a large part of South County Dublin is not a deprived area. It does not have the kind of difficulties that you talk about, and yet government or council has not suggested putting modular housing there, and that is absolutely wrong. In in yeah. if we are to address the issue of homeless people in Ireland and attempt to give them a house and taking children out of hotels, we all have to share that burden equally. And I think you've made 
a very valid point, and I hope your valid points uh, reach the right ears. We um, would I like guess. to work with the homeless families because their sure. issue, and we put it to Dublin City Council via our councillors, is that we have a pile of solutions for homeless families, and we had them solutions last year and the year before, and it's looking like we're going to have them still next year. Sandra, sorry, I'm running out of time, but I am grateful uh, because you've made some very valid points, which I'm sure will be developed over the coming weeks and months, and particularly even on this programme. Sandra Devlin, there, spokesperson for the Fingless Action Group, and it's important, you can tell from that woman's point, it isn't about the people or the houses. This is about having proper planning um, for the issue. The Right Hook, with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic, with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie all right, well, we're here at Boston College and uh, we're in the stadium and somebody I wanted to meet when I was here, of course, was the coach to the Boston Eagles and he's he's come over to the studio and talked to us. It's Coach Steve Adazio. Coach, welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be with you. You're relatively new here, aren't you? How many seasons? Well, I've been here three. I'm going into my fourth year. Right. Um, the, the the college football for Irish people back home, whose only exposure to college football is on television, and of course now, crucially, the game in September. Uh, what are your thoughts about September the 3rd, Georgia Tech, and coming to Ireland to play the game? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, we're excited about going to Ireland. It's a great experience for our players, for our staff, for our fans. And uh, we're playing a great opponent in Georgia Tech. We're opening the season with an ACC conference game, which is stressful because usually at, at our level, you know, you open with a non-conference, a little bit easier game to get going with. So here we start right off with a conference opponent. They're in a unique offense in the wishbone, triple option style of offense. So I think the combination of a great opponent playing overseas, great experience, it uh, you know it certainly will be exciting. Now, when you talk about a conference for for Irish listeners, we call this like a league or a division or right. whatever. So this game counts in your seasons when 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 the team's record and your record is added up at the end of the season. This match counts. So so the point. This is a deadly serious game we're going to see in Dublin on September third. Right. They all count, but this counts towards the conference championship. Okay. Or the league championship. So, you know, those games are precious. And uh, you've got to win as many conference matchups as you can. So, uh, you know, it, it, it certainly adds to the pressure of the whole deal. Now, um, we, we're we getting better at it because of television. I mean, 25 years ago, uh, gridiron or American football was a complete mystery to Irish people because of television, we know more about it. And then because of the college championships in Dublin, we know a bit more again. I suppose that the most, the two things... Uh, for for Europeans and Irish people in general, that that sets you apart for us is one the number of players in the squad. So how many players in the squad have you got? Well, there's 85 scholarship players, and then another 20 walk-ons. So what that means, walk-ons is a term used for their non-scholarship. They pay their own way to school, but they want to be involved with the football team. But in Division One Power Five football, which is what we play, right? One of the Power Five conferences. Everybody has 85 scholarship players. Now, uh, on on the September 3rd in Lansdowne Road, how many players will be kitted out and ready to go? 
Oh, the whole squad. So really, a hundred and five. Now you're the head coach, but but with eighty five players, with offense and defense and special plays and right. so on, you're crucially relying also, of course, on your assistants, aren't right. you? I do. Yeah, I mean, I have a offensive coordinator in charge of the offense, the defensive coordinator in charge of the defense, the special teams coordinator in, in charge of the special teams, and then I oversee everything. And every head coach is different. You know, some are highly involved on one side or the other. Some are less involved in the actual nuts and bolts of what goes on on that side. They're more overseers. I'm all the above. I mean, I'm oversee everything, but I'm real hands-on and everything. But but you were at Notre Dame, I think, at one point I in was. your career, and and you looked after offense. Uh, I think did you? I coached on offense. I, I was in charge of special teams at Notre Dame. When I went to Florida. I was in charge of the offense at Florida at one point, and I was also the interim head coach at the University of Florida. So I've had a lot of different roles at different places. Now, um, the the uh, season coming up that you're you're planning for, which the first game will be in Dublin, um, what's the, the Boston? Who are the big teams? Who are the teams that scare you when you're when you're trying to get to a bowl at the end of season? Well, or, um, obviously. Um, the best teams in your conference, you know, which any conference game worries you. But the best teams in the conference, you know, we play in our division, our side. We play Clemson, Florida State, Louisville, and they're very, very talented teams. And so those are those are teams that you know you're you worry about because they have great players. Now, when just on on this conference, this scholarship thing that you talked about, you hear about it really. You must also have scouts now going around all the high schools and, and they see really good kids. And then you probably are in competition with some of these other universities who are trying to recruit this really good quarterback from, from a high school or something. Yeah, it's Sorry. very competitive. I mean, you know... We're all vying for the top players, and uh, there's certain restrictions. I mean, we have academic restrictions. We just can't take anybody that's a minimum NCAA qualifier, for example. At Boston College, you know, we, we have to have a good student. So that that will take that pool of players and greatly reduce it. Sure. Now, you mentioned um, Team Florida, you mentioned Clemson, you mentioned Louisville. Half the games are going to be at home and half the games are going to be away. Do Boston alumni all then get on the plane and head off to Louisville and so on? The reason I ask that, uh, it's probably as far to go to Ireland as it is to go to Louisville, you know? So are you expecting a lot of people to travel to Dublin then? Yeah, I would say we'd have a good contingency. I mean, we don't travel as well as some programs do, um, but but certainly going to Ireland will be very attractive to a lot of the BC alumni, you know, and uh, we have a lot of uh, Irish Catholic alumni that uh, you know, um, I'm, you know, I'm sure will will really relish have an opportunity to go to Ireland. Yeah. Well, look, I know also how competitive it is to be a coach uh, in, in American football. So every good wish for a good season is pretty important. Oh, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Coach Steve Adazio, who's coach here at Boston College, September the 3rd in Dublin against Georgia Tech. And, of course, we'll be rooting for the Catholics against the Prods from the South. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie
All right, well, uh, we, you know me and integration in Ireland. Well, I got a text last week talking about the Irish failure to integrate in Boston. And they said we should come to a bakery in Dorchester, which is full of Irish and uh, little chip marmalade and everything. So we duly took the advice. And we came to see uh, Dermot Quinn in Green Hills Bakery is with me. Now, Dermot, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, George. Well, well just on my left here, I have a fellow from Skibbereen, which I'm going to talk to in a minute. But, but it is intensely Irish here. I mean, it really is an Irish bakery. Customers Irish then, are they? We have a great mix of um, uh, customers, a lot of community people from Dorchester and, and around in surrounding areas. And then we've got every county in Ireland coming to the bakery. It's uh, the, the melting pot um, in, in, in Boston here. Just to just um, to just uh, congregate together here a lot and help each other out in times of needs and times of joy as well. How did you kick the business off? How did it start? It started uh, on a wing and a prayer. Um, it just started making a few breads out of um, um, an apartment down in South Boston back in 1990. And um, we had—I'm uh, a chef by 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 thread. And um, <clears throat> when I came to America, I worked in New York City first for f the first four years, and then I came to Boston, uh, just change the scenery. And uh, I saw that um, every morning, all these painters and plasterers and everybody would come together and go to a, a Dunkin' Donuts or a, a local coffee shop. And I said there was, there was an opening there for a little uh, Irish bakery or an Irish coffee shop. And hence I just, not intentionally, opened up one. I just um, started making a little bit of brown bread and a little bit, a few scones out of the house and uh, all of a sudden it snowballed into a business. And, and here you are now 25 years later. Five years later. And we come in, there's a line down the thing and is like, it's a bakery, so you're still doing the same kind of Irish brown bread from County Offaly that you did 25 years ago. Well, uh, brown bread is a signature to uh, a lot of households yeah. throughout Ireland. You can, uh, you can, uh, you can, uh, you can um, go to any county or any town in Ireland and you can get a different brown bread. It's everybody has their own stranglehold and the recipe for brown bread. And hence, my grandmother always um, had a, we, what we were brought up and reared on, our grandmother and my mother and brothers and sisters, they all lived on that brown bread. And um, we just, that's what we're used to. But we, it's, it's a lighter brown bread. Some of the brown bread at home now tends to be very dark and yeah. dense. We, we make it a, a, medium, a, medium, a medium blend there. But um, it, talking about the community, you know, and you said the community is staying together. I mean, 30-odd years ago, 40-odd years ago, there were a ton of Irish pubs. I mean, a lot of those Irish pubs have gone, though, haven't they? Um, well, the change, the change with the generation, too. You know, the, there's been a, a renaissance of uh, Irish business, so to speak, uh, in, the, in the last 20 years. Uh, pubs have sort of, that generation has moved... The younger generation has moved mostly into um, technology and maybe some retail as well. Yeah, but I mean, talking about communities, the Irish who came over here, like your generation, my generation, the ones before us, they came here and they congregated because they were, you know, working class people and so on. But this next generation of Irish who are coming over here, you said it, are in technology and so on. So they're probably moving to parts of Boston, which aren't traditionally Irish. Will that be right? Um, 
Yeah, but um, when you have a base, they tend to gravitate back to a, a base. Um, they'll, they'll spread their wings and go else, every, every different place. You go anywhere in the world and they'll be Irish. But when you have a, a, a center, like the cultural center or the heritage center or a little place like the Green Hills Bakery, that the Irish tend to gravitate back towards the center of the... Yeah, of but the, right behind you know, me, you know, we're talking in your coffee shop and I saw the little chip marmalade and I saw, <laughs> I, you know, the biscuits and the cream crackers and yeah. all the stuff very much from home. It, this must... For Irish people coming here, do they do they look for Irish products? Then it must be great to come Absolutely, somewhere they yeah. understand. Yeah, you know it is. It is a great. It's a great um, come together, and you sit here at this table on any given morning, and the Gaelic is flying. You know, it's it's just great to hear it, and um, people that come in just to see other people, just to um, you know, just obviously to come in for a product and the bit fresh baked goods, and we do lunches, we do sandwiches, we open up at 5 a.m. in the morning, we serve coffee. Um, we're more, much more than a bakery. We're more of a, a cafe and, you know, lunches and... Yeah, when I last was in Candiophilly, they didn't open at 5 a.m., no. <laughs> 5 p.m., you mean? <laughs> you might have gotten a no, I, We have somebody next to us who, who used to live here, and is from Skibbereen and Cork, and, and, uh, but you've come over to visit your family, haven't you? I've come over to visit a brother who's here for 30 years, but I lived here myself in the 80s, and things have changed big time. I remember if you did a day's work here back in the 80s, you went to the pub for a couple of pints, but now we come to the Green Hills for a cup of coffee at five o'clock in the evening. So things have changed a lot since the 80s. So it's a great coffee shop. No, like it's open at five in the morning. But, but your family now, like we've got your nephew here. Yeah. I mean, he's intensely American when I, when I listen to him speak. Uh, like, but has he got Ireland's call and our own Vian and all that stuff? I mean, oh. does he still feel Irish? I'm going to talk to him, but what do you think? Most definitely. He was in Ireland last year now and everything about him is Irish. He knows more about Irish rugby and football and hurling. We have the Irish channels on the TV, so we were watching the hurling over the weekend. This fellow was roaring away at for Limbrick because his so mother is from Limbrick. Who have so we got here? This is uh, Kevin Swanton. He's my nephew. He's 14. He's with the Boston Irish Wolfhounds rugby team. Yeah, One Kevin. Of the teams that I was originally involved in when it was set up back in 1989. Yeah. Kevin, uh, you're playing rugby here. You're 14, and you're you're marginally taller than me. Um, the the, uh, the Limerick, uh, like, but there's a fellow from Cork next year. Cork hurling is measurably superior to Limerick hurling. Did your uncle not tell you that? I'm a Cork fan. I do not support Limerick, and. Um, I'm a true Cork fan. But but listen to I'm listening to your accent, you know. I mean nobody coming in to the Green Hills Bakery would think that you have any Irish connection. Do you really feel connected to Ireland? Um, I most certainly do because like I have my uncle coming out, my other my other uncle comes out in the fall. Um, I play rugby and other Gaelic sports down in Canton. Um, I could play the national anthem on guitar, the Irish national anthem. And um, I love watching Gaelic football and I love learning like Gaelic sayings and stuff like um, Falsha and all that. Just, there's so many uh, organizations here. St. Brendan's have a youth um, uh, football and hurling program. And actually, um, Canton has one there as well. And there's, I'm supporting, I'm sponsoring one of the, the programs. They're taking all these kids back to Ireland for a tour of um, Gaelic, to play Gaelic football and hurling in Ireland this summer. So it's, it's, a, it's a great program. Couple of couple of great programs out there for that, and then every time you turn around, there's uh, Irish step dancing, 
and it's it's so it's so so big worldwide now the step dancing and the Irish dancing. You said you had a couple of people you wanted us to meet down here. Yes, yeah? yes, Why yes. Why do we do that? We have uh, Jim Grogan over here. Jim, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, tell me about Green Hills Bakery anyway. Does it feel like home with the little chip marmalade, does it? Do you ever walk down O'Connor Street in Dublin? <laughs> yeah, go on. Well, there's your answer. Every county come in here. Really? From all over. Uh, back home in the GA, it's a county business. Out here, we're all Irish, regardless who you play with. And every one of them, when I pick them up at the airport, never seen them before in my life, the first question they say to me, am I going to be staying anywhere near a place called the Green Hills Bakery? Really? These would be J1s now, college kids. And uh, they all pass the word along, and that's exactly how it... How, how long have you been over here? Uh, not too long, 54 years. Uh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> so you actually were born here, were you? No, I was 19 when I got here. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And and it never didn't go home. I mean, I know you're normal visits, oh, but, many but you never went home to thinking of go, oh, going home hope. to. Not a chance. No, I wouldn't. No, yeah. I like it here. Yeah. yeah. Make it too much money, or well, a little bit of everything. Yeah, and brown bread from Dermot. <laughs> and brown bread from Dermot, keep it going. Is this an Irish fella here or not? <laughs> that it is, he's a Sligo man. Is he? Yeah, I'm from Tip myself. All right, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who have we got here? David Ralston. From? Sligo. Really? Yeah. It was a fella called Chris Ralston played for England in the yeah. second up. Yeah. He wasn't related to you? No, no, he wasn't. All right, and how long have you been over here? About 30 years. And you're not going back either? Well, I come and go. Right. And and here every morning for coffee every and brown morning. Three times a day, maybe. Really? <laughs> See, no wonder Dermot's making a fortune with customers like you. Who have I got here? Mike Carey from Russia Bridge, Westmead. Oh, right. From and and um, you're involved in rugby over here, yeah, are you? Yeah, I'm involved with the rugby and the Gaelic and yeah, the Irish and, Cultural and who Centre. And the, who are the, the rugby Boston team? Irish Wolfhounds. Oh, right. Yeah, okay. we're going through a tough time right now, but... We'll be back again. I knew a guy who used to coach the Wolfhounds about 25 years Sean ago. O'Leary. Sean O'Leary. Yes, I know him. And he went to Notre Dame. <laughs> that's right. He's gone on or he's moved on. To, to one of the professional coach. teams. Yes, that's right, yeah. All right. Yeah, okay. rugby is tough here because the country is so large. Of course. And... Um, well, you know, you've been here. I read your book. <laughs> yeah, and I lived down the road in Providence. Yeah. That's right, yes. Yeah. I know all about so it. So that's great. So you've got to get me back to do a fundraiser for the Wolfhounds yeah, or something. I think that's what we sure. ought to do. Yeah, we'd love to get you back. Have you seen the size of this guy here at 14? I know. This young sure. fella. Yeah, they're fed better than we are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, play, he plays in the youth program. That's what he told me, yes, yeah. Yes. So the food. I'm involved is... with the youth. All I'm right, involved, okay. Yeah. So you'll have to get me back. Thanks so much I for will. talking to me. No problem. And Thank good you. luck with the Wolf fans. Thanks very much. Dermot, thanks for having us okay. all here. Right, it was a really welcome. great experience. And I'm glad to see there's Barry's tea on sale for all us Cork fellas. Yeah, well, he must made, he must have made a small fortune, that <laughs> fella called Barry. <laughs> there's money in tea, as you well know, Dermot. Yeah, and we have a great story here about the Boston Tea Party. <laughs> you should know all about that. <laughs> so look, I'll have to come back okay. again all for right. a coffee. Thanks very much for uh, coming to us, no, uh, George. Thank you for having me. Yeah, okay. Take care. God bless.